If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Frank and Jesse James come to Kentucky. Welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. History is full of curious stories you will never discover in any textbook. We uncover fun facts about historical people, interesting places, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. And Harold, just want to give a few updates before we uh, move along with our podcast. Of course, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now we're on YouTube. Uh, so if you have any of these social media platforms, make sure to friend us, like us, subscribe, so you can stay up to date with what we publish. And uh, we'll also post historical pictures and documents on those platforms from Harold's personal collection. Some of these are unseen, and you'll not be able to see them anywhere else. Also, if you have any questions about a previous podcast... Uh, or there's a topic you would like for us to cover, hit the link at the bottom of our page notes, and it will take you to our podcast page uh, where you can leave us a voice message. All right, Harold, where do you want to begin tonight? Well, a couple little uh, housekeeping things, Brian. I uh, made a mistake on our last podcast uh, uh, on the amount of money that was uh, taken from the Clay County Savings Bank in Liberty, Missouri. <laughs> we said $600. Uh, this was the biggest robbery they ever hit. It was closer to $60,000. They had uh, actually taken $18,000 in cash and currency and about $50,000 in bonds. So, uh, yeah, well, that was a grievous mistake. We looked at the wrong figures there for sure. Well, so that happens. To, yeah, well, all the dates and figures, we're going to have that. That's going to happen over time. But anyway, I wanted to correct that to make sure. Also, a little side note, um, in 1982, they, they they proposed a stamp for the U.S. Post Office to issue of Jesse James. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, didn't fly. No. I, yeah. <laughs> they uh, they said, no, nah, they, they don't think that's a guy to honor, so they didn't they didn't issue a stamp to Jesse James. That's but they, probably a good so, choice. I don't know who they were that tried this, but it's an interesting story anyway that they it was proposed that the U.S. Post Office honored Jesse with a stamp, and it didn't happen, so. Probably fitting. Well, that's that's a good piece of uh, uncommon history. I didn't know about the stamp. Right. Okay, you want to start with? Uh, well, let's talk about his nickname. Oh, okay. He had a we'll nickname, and it had a story about how every time he had his picture made, he did something. Right. Let's cover those two real quick. Yep. Uh, Frank gave him this nickname when Jesse was young. He was probably around 16, 17 years old this time, and I know most of our listeners probably. Um, aren't uh, very knowledgeable about muzzle-loading firearms, but um, at that time, 
everything had to be loaded from the muzzle, or if it was a revolver, they had to load the each individual cylinder and press a bullet down on top of the powder charge. And Jesse was in the process of doing this, and uh, the gun went off, <laughs> and it blowed the one of his fingers, his index finger, I believe it was on his left hand, and uh, lost about an inch of it. Oh, man. Yeah. And he hollered, dingus. <laughs> Frank. <laughs> Frank, they said, got down laughing. And anyway, kind of blowed his finger off. But anyway, Frank thought that was funny. But anyway, from that point on, as far as Frank and the family, they called him dingus. <laughs> now, what's, well. yeah. now, what's interesting about this is, and it, he, he was very self-conscious about this, and uh, I'll challenge our listeners, if you want to look at any photograph of Jesse James when you can see his hands, he will always cover that finger up with his other hand. Okay. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, of all the things to be conscious, you know, self-conscious about with his history, I mean, it was his finger. He didn't like people seeing that. You know what the character of Frank James, you would think uh, Dingus would not be an acceptable <laughs> <laughs> nickname for him, but I guess if your older brother gives it to you, you well, know, you're, stuck. You're, yeah. you're, yeah, it's going to stick. That's so. one of the that's one of the ways that you you know when you're reading about him that uh, those closest to him, that's that was his nickname. They called him Dingus. It was kind of a code name too. So you want to start with the Tennessee years? Well, yeah, we can talk about the Tennessee years a little bit. Uh, they were in Nashville, Tennessee, from 1875 to 1881. Now. Um, they moved several times. I think there's four houses that are still standing down there. That okay. uh, I think one sold, I believe, here a while back. I think they were asking like four hundred and forty thousand dollars for wow. something. Now these, you know, they're not mansions; they're just right. regular houses. And of course, Frank and Jesse would live under assumed names. They used all kinds of different names. You know, Dingus. When, yeah. <laughs> well, when when Jesse was shot, you know, his name was Mister Howard. Okay. Yeah. So the, every town they had a new name for every town, probably. And um, so they lived in Nashville. Now they worked in a, a barrel factory. And uh, if you want to, Brian, on our on our Facebook or whatever, we can put those a photograph of them. There is a good photograph of them working at the barrel factory. Oh, well, I had that. Yes. And so they were. You know, we think. <laughs> If you think that they just had all kinds of money and, you know, had gold hidden everywhere and all these stories that you hear, these legends and myths and so forth, these guys had to work some, you know. So this money they were stealing maybe didn't go as far as you would think. Another thing they got into down there, they were into horse racing. And they were buying horses and they were gambling pretty heavily on them. And I know they probably thought they was a pretty good judge of, of horse flesh and everything, but... Well, I'd say that's a good sign where the money went. Yep. Horses aren't cheap. Yep. And uh, a lot of historians that have researched them think that they lost a lot of money fooling with horses. You know, it could be a, a very crooked racket down there, too, and gambling and so forth. You know, you can just imagine. But uh, anyway, there's a place down there that that I visited when we was there with the James reunion. Uh, they showed where the horse track was, where Jesse and him had raced some horses. And there's also a photograph that I believe is Jesse. Uh, pretty, I think most people that study the photographs believe it is him too, in a jockey outfit. So we might put that on the podcast. Uh, I mean, on the uh, Facebook page as well. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we'll move from Nashville. Well, I know one of the things too. We'll talk. Let's talk about the Pinkerton raid on the James home in, James home in Missouri. I know you said that had a great deal with building sympathy uh, for them with the public. Right. 
um, yeah, this was a pretty, this was a big blunder. Um, in our lifetime, I remember Waco, Texas, you know, and that, right. that has looked at by some people as a blunder of the ATF, but uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But uh, anyway, this is kind of similar to that in the sense that they used tactics they probably shouldn't have done. But what happened was, now, you get two sides of the story. The Pinkertons, uh, by the way, the, if you go back and a little history of the Pinkertons, you know that started during the Civil War, Alan Pinkerton, and actually started like the Secret Service and so forth. And then it turned into a detective agency, and then they were assigned to hunt down criminals like the Jameses and others. So anyway, Alan Pinkerton and... Um, let me see. I've got these guys' names that were there. Um, well, let's move on. That's not important. They surrounded the house. This was in um, January of 1875. Now, was this the mother's home? or yes, was it? Okay. this was the mother's home. This was the farm. They had reports that Jesse and Frank were there as like at 5 o'clock that day. Okay? So they close in on the house around midnight and surround the house. And they throw in these, quote, incendiary, incendiary devices, okay? Now, Pinkerton said it was, uh, they threw fireballs in that they did this to light up the house so they could see inside to see who was in there. Now, <laughs> I've been in this house, okay? So this is just a simple old frame house with wood floors that, you know, you throw something on fire in the house, it's going to catch it on fire. So were they trying to burn them out? You know, well, what had happened, evidently, they knew that they were coming. So they had boarded up the windows from the inside. So they had to go up and actually knock some of these boards out and throw these devices in the house to try to see in there to see who was in there. Now, their story doesn't fit. As somebody that's retired from law enforcement who's been a part of SWAT teams and high-entry risk teams, you don't throw in something, right? an incendiary device to light up the house. Right, and yeah. I think the general public kind of took it that yeah. way as well. I don't think they bought that. I think they were trying to set the house on fire. Yeah, trying to smoke them out. Right. Well, they threw in this thing that was called Greek fire, which was a military. Actually, they got it from the military. And um, Mr. Samuels, when they threw it in the house, he kicked it in or took a shovel and shoveled it into the fireplace, which was, I guess, smart. Yes. Or maybe thought it was because that, what else would you put it? Right. I mean, it was a masonry fireplace, so you put it there where it wouldn't catch the house on fire. And they did catch the house on fire, and they put it out. Anyway, this incendiary device blew up, <laughs> and it killed uh, their little stepbrother, Archie. Oh, really? Uh, it blew Mrs. James's arm severely below the elbow. Uh, she lost it. She had to, he had to amputate it. Wow. So when you see photographs of her for after this date of January 1875, you'll see that she has only a partial arm there on one side. And then a piece of it hit Mr. Samuels in the head, but it wasn't a severe wound. So there was an outrage over this, especially the killing of the little boy, you know. And uh, there was a, a Clay County Circuit uh, Court that actually uh, returned indictments against well, I tell you, it was Robert King, Alan Pinkerton, Jack Ladd, and five others involved in the incident. But this got mired down in legal matters because these guys, I guess, were from Illinois. 
and the governor of Missouri had to deal with the governor of Illinois to try to get these indicted and all this, and it just kind of fell apart. Okay. Nothing ever really came of it, but uh, it did turn the public sympathy uh, in favor of the Jameses for sure. So that's one of the incidents that helped. And, and Frank and Jesse were not there anywhere no, around. No, okay. they weren't there. And uh, they were outraged, though, obviously. Rightly so. Yeah. Okay, right. so I know there's uh, everybody's got a story. Uh, the James gang slept in my barn. Yep. Well, this one is actually uh, uh, some descendants of this family uh, kept this story alive, and they did a really great job of doc- kind of documenting it. And uh, this happened in Boonville, Kentucky, or excuse me, Bonneville, Kentucky, not Boonville. And Bonneville is kind of between Adairville and Russellville. And uh, it supposedly, uh, the, the people's name was Jim and Rose Highball. And Jim said he was out on his porch one night, and he looked and he saw these men come riding up. And um, he noticed that he had seen a wanted poster in Munfordville, Kentucky, which is near there. And he noticed that it looked like Jesse James. Hmm. One of the guys looked like Jesse and Frank. And so they rode up. They were very polite. They asked if uh, they could water their horses and uh, rest for a while in his barn. And he said he he said he sure wouldn't he wouldn't uh, uh, deny a brother rest and, and water. So he said, "You guys just make yourself at home. There's some hay in the barn. Feed your horses and uh, rest a spell." So he went in the house. He told his wife. He said, "You know, I think that's who we got here." Said. They don't seem to be threatening or anything right now. He said, let's uh, fix them something to eat and uh, be hospitable. Be hospitable. And uh, this is typical of people in the country. This is just the nature of these people. And uh, so they said, fine. uh, Or he said, fine, we'll do that. So she cooked them some beans and cornbread. and They took it out, and they were very grateful and thankful for it. They were starving to death, evidently. And uh, so he told them they could stay there that night and have breakfast with them in the morning. He said, you know, he had two daughters, and he said he just wanted to let them know that that uh, he was, you know, concerned for their safety that they'd have to stay in the barn. Yeah. They couldn't come to the house, but they were welcome to stay in the barn. They said they were more than happy just to stay in the barn. So they did. So the next morning, um, she, uh, his wife, Rose, fixed him a big breakfast and invited him in, and they talked, and they were very amiable. He said couldn't have been any nicer. And said when he got ready to leave, said Rose took a, a jar of, blackberry preserves and said went out and said here jesse put that in your saddlebags and take that home to your mama (laughs) so (laughs) southern hospitality right so they rode away and uh, he said she said you wondered if miss james ever saw that blackberry (laughs) preserves that's a long way from bonneville kentucky to clay county missouri i'd say they got hungry between um so what about was frank and jesse did ever was there a time that they were ever scared during any of their ex- escapades, or is there a time that uh, they talk oh, about? Oh, you know it? they were. I mean, good night. They were in so many, so many uh, scrapes, and I, I guess you condition yourself to this. And, and, and growing up, you know, we've already covered all that. The where they grew up, the violence they saw, and everything. They were conditioned to this. I mean, you know, it was part of it. But Frank gave an interview in 1900, said the most scared he ever was. <laughs> he was in Columbia, Tennessee. And he, he was supposedly there with Quantrell coming into Kentucky. 
and his horse gave out. Now, that's a common thing. We talked about that a little bit. I think, again, if we're not horse people, if we don't ride horses every day, if we don't fully understand the equine world, we don't know right. how to handle horses. Well, his horses gave out. When they gave out, they're done. That's it. You know, they ain't no coming back. You don't rest overnight and get on it and go. It's just, it's gonna, it's probably done. It's broke know? down. Yeah. So he had kind of desperately searched around. He, they were in a hurry. They thought they were being pursued. So he'd, he'd searched around frantically, and he went to this barn. It was dark. He couldn't see very good. He knew there was horses in there. I thought he was. So he goes in there, and he grabs the first animal he comes to, and they keep telling him, you know, you're going to have to hurry up. You know, we got to go. So he grabs this, this horse and throws us, or thought it was a horse, and throws a saddle on it. <laughs> oh, no. It turned out to be a mule. <laughs> but it was a good mule. Yeah. <laughs> it was a friendly mule, too. He yeah. throwed his horse, you know. And so they take off, and they kind of decide to split up a little bit because he, they're afraid that they're, these uh, federals are on them. So he takes off riding. He rides out to this fork in the road, he said, and he took the left fork because it looked like the right fork was the most used. So he took the left fork, thought maybe that might throw him off a little bit, and said he heard these horses coming. said he just knew he was in trouble. That mule couldn't go very fast. It wasn't no horse. You know, right. mules are pretty sure-footed, but they're not no race horse, you know. So he knew he'd probably get overtook, so he thought, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? So he said that really made him nervous. So he... He got over and he, he said, I'm just going to get off the road, hide in the bushes, and hope they, can, hope they don't hear me or hope this mule don't bay or something or other, so, you know, give him away. So he took to the bushes and the side of the road, and uh, they were closing in on him. He said they rode right up and stopped. And he said, I'm a head lad. I'm, I'm done. It's over. It's over. I said, he just sat there real quiet. I said, the mule sat there real quiet. I said, he didn't make a sound. And say after several anxious minutes, he looked out and said, well, there were all the other mules from that barn. <laughs> it, followed <laughs> it, followed, it followed him. So he said he had 20 other mules from that barn. It was those federal soldiers. <laughs> he said he laughed so hard. He, he said he probably laughed harder about that than any story he ever told. They was going to stay with the mule. Huh? They was going to stay, stay with together. their buddy, yeah. Oh, man. He thought he was a head lad over that. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the uh, Huntington Bank robbery. Okay. Huntington, West Virginia. This was September of 1875. Uh, there was this story out about they were getting this deposit from Adams Express of $100,000. Now, Brian, I don't understand things like this. Uh, first of all, if you're going to get this large deposit, why would you advertise it so you could get robbed? I don't understand, and I don't know that that really happened. But that's part of the story about this. The, 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 uh, something drew their attention to Huntington, West Virginia, is a long way from either Kentucky or Missouri, wherever they were. So, uh, and, and they had talked about knocking this bank off, and the word had kind of gotten out. So uh, they, they were uh, Frank and Jesse, or excuse me, Cole Younger, Jesse and Frank, and a couple other guys take off to Huntington, West Virginia to rob the bank. Well, they come into town, <laughs> and uh, there was a fellow named, there by the name of Calvin Reese. He was a Baptist minister, and there was a Methodist conference going on. <laughs> so <laughs> Jesse pretty quick on his feet, you know, and Jesse and Cole decided that they were going to be preachers. So they told the guy that uh, they were pastors and in town for the Methodist conference <laughs> and would like for him to show them around. 
<laughs> so the guy being really amiable, you know, here we go again, just good old Southern hospitality. He shows them around town, and they, you know, they drive, you know, he wants to go by the bank and see how the, all the places, you know. So for a couple of days, he takes them around town. They stay with him. <laughs> and, and then a couple of days later, they hit the bank for about $9,000 in cash and $5,000 in certificates of deposit. Wow. And they split up in two groups, and they take off. Well, they... <laughs> What their plan was, and, and I, I won't get into a whole lot of this because it's it gets a little bit boring, but the word had gotten out. You know, what we forget sometimes about these guys, the telegraph was system was pretty well established. And so if you knock off a town, even though the, they weren't primitive riding horses, you know, in primitive conditions and so forth, they couldn't outrun the telegraph. Right. So the telegraph operators they would run to a telegraph office and say hey they took off south the posse's after them they're headed toward livingston kentucky or whatever and they would they would telegraph ahead you know and, and they'd be looking for them so that was part of the problem with getting them getting away it wasn't as easy as it sounds they just didn't ride off into the darkness they rode off into you know areas they had to avoid some towns they knew had telegraph and so forth so they got into eastern kentucky in the boonville area and uh, there was a posse there of about 10 men. And then they went on to a, a place called Pine Hill, and uh, they had eluded that posse. And there was another posse that had been looking for them. So they went to this house to find food and shelter, and I think the people's name was uh, Johnson. Mm -hmm. And so they took them in and fed them and everything, and Jesse gave Miss Johnson a gold coin. as one of the things that she treasured, they said, all of her life and remembered wow. it by and then um, they, they, they left there and went to another boarding house the next night. And I'm not sure where it was, but it was east of Pine Hill. And they went to a place by the name, the guy owned it by the name of William Dillons. And he had a boarding house. Now, Jesse being pretty shrewd and, and, and cold, they sent two of the younger members of the gang to this house and they laid back well when they approached the house at about 12 o'clock at night um they asked him so what are you doing you know who are you why are you traveling out so late and the dealers just opened fire on them they realized they knew something wasn't right so anyway one of the gang members was shot and uh his name was thompson mcdaniel and he, he, he made it to a cornfield and hid out. And they found him there the next day. He was still alive. Huh. So then uh, they had telegraphed the Lois Yankee Bly. He came there to, to that area of Pine Hill in pursuit of the gang. And uh, Jesse and Cole Younger had escaped. Tom Webb, the other gang member, there was four of them, as I mentioned, Tom Webb, Tom McDaniel, Jesse, and Cole. Tom Webb had escaped to Tennessee. And... Uh, they caught him uh, in Jamestown, Tennessee, or Jamestown, Kentucky. There's some description there or, or discrepancies there, whether it was Jamestown, Tennessee, or Jamestown, Kentucky. He had $1,494 on him, hmm. and which is a lot of money back yes. then for some guy just traveling. And anyway, it was bloodstained as well. So they knew that he was, you know. He eventually was convicted. He got 14 years in prison for that. Uh, McDaniels died 
and he's buried there somewhere in that area, and we have never been able to find his grave. I have looked for it myself and uh, just can't, can't seem to find it. Okay. So let's talk about Mammoth Cave, the Mammoth Cave stage robbery, and this is going to tie in with uh, Jesse's murder right. in Missouri. Right. Well, this, is, this was in um, 1880. Now, this is getting close to the end of Jesse's life here. Um, the, the Mammoth Cave State, now this is from an eyewitness, you all, in, in, in 1882. It tells this story. So it was the person that was there, okay? And what happened was you, if you were interested in going to Mammoth Cave, you could drive a train either north or south to uh, Cave City, and there was a big hotel there. It's just been torn down a few years ago. I remember seeing it in, in real dilapidated condition. It was a big thing. It was hmm. a big motel, hotel there. And obviously the cave tourism is something that has been going on for years. Right. So um, it was quite an attraction even back then. And so people would ride the train to Cave City. And then there were stagecoaches that ran a regular trip from the cave hotel to the cave and back. And it was a, it was an all-day deal. If okay. you, they'd leave like at 7 o'clock in the morning. They'd get to the cave around 10 o'clock. They'd leave at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and get back, you know, 7 o'clock at night. So it was about a 12-hour round trip. Now, on this particular trip, there was a guy from Lebanon, Kentucky, and his name was uh, R.H. Roundtree, Judge R.H. Roundtree. Now, they called him judge, but he really wasn't a judge. Hmm. He was like a banker or something. Any reason why, or is that just something I don't know. I, I never have heard an ex- explanation or read an explanation why they called him Judge Roundtree. I don't know. Hmm. Um his daughter was named Lizzie. She was with him. And a nephew, his name was, I just had the initials, P.S. Roundtree. And he was, he was living in Minnesota. There was another passenger named J.E. Craig from Georgia. There was a S.M. Shelton from Tennessee. And there was three or four others that were on the stage. Now, they'd been to the, state, the cave all day. And they were coming back. And as they rounded a bend, there's a little church site there called Little Hope. Baptist Church, and I think there is a cemetery there today. I believe if you go there, I think you could find that true. And two bandits rode up to the stage with pistols and pulled them over. Uh, the stage driver stopped, put his hands up. Um, they didn't have anything on the stage other than the passengers, what the passengers would have had on them personally. Right. Now, the two, excuse me, the two people that were involved in this was a guy named Bill Ryan and Jesse. Now, Jesse and Bill had been living in Tennessee at this time, so they is up, up cruising around trying to figure out some place to rob, I guess, and they had been drinking. So the, 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 the passengers remembered them being a little bit uh, inebriated. As <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, people think usually pretty quickly and Lizzie was in the, she was the only woman in the stagecoach, and she took off her ring and slipped it under the seat. Well, he ordered all the rest of the passengers out, except Lizzie, let her stay in there. And they lined them all up and told them to empty their pockets, and they passed a hat or a sack or something around. Now, Judge Roundtree had a watch on him, a gold watch, that was given to him by former Governor Proctor Knott who was, by the way, I think a governor in Kentucky and a governor in Missouri. Huh. Or a, a politician in Missouri, came back to Lebanon, Kentucky. He's well-known uh, in this area at, at that time. He was a real notable guy. Did a lot of good, from what I've been told. Anyway, um, 
she, he had given this Judge Roundtree a watch, and it was inscribed, presented to, from, you know, and all that. So they, uh, they emptied their pockets. They uh, passed a flask of whiskey around, <laughs> <laughs> and there was a colored driver supposedly on the stage, and uh, he didn't drink, and they told him, said, yeah, you are today, so they, they, made, him, <laughs> they made him take a drink. Of, you know, why would you do that? Well, at least they weren't stingy. Yeah, they, they told him that he was going to have to drink today. So anyway, uh, then they did something real unusual. And I think this is, it's either really smart or it's just something they just spontaneously thought of. But they said, we're going to pass a piece of paper around. We want to write all your all's names down and addresses. And said, if we have another good robbery today, we might return some of your fables. <laughs> <laughs> now... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but here's the problem with that is that if you wrote your name down, they knew who you were, right? Exactly. And they knew where to find you, right? So that was this an intimidation tactic on their part? And the old proverb is snitches get stitches. Yeah. So if they told yeah. on them, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they, I, I guess they all wrote their proper names down. Then they said, well, said, we don't think, we think you all are holding back on us and said, we're going to search you. If we find any money or any more valuables, we're going to shoot you. So there are a few more things fell out of their pockets, you know, <laughs> that they found. It was just amazing. So anyway, um, they rode off toward Cave City, disappears. Uh, Judge Roundtree immediately recognized the guys, Jesse James. He knew. He'd seen him before, you know. These guys' faces by this time were well-known. Uh, well-known, yeah. They knew who it was. And, and they also probably knew who Bill Ryan was as one of their compatriots there. So they got back to uh, Cave City, and the people of Cave City, one of the forgotten parts of this story never gets told was that uh, the people felt really sorry for them. They took their tickets and everything. I mean, they didn't have anything. They, would, they asked them to give their tickets back because they need them to get on the train to come home, right. and they wouldn't even do that. So, But uh, the people of Cave City jumped in and helped them buy tickets and raise money for them so they could get home and... and uh, you know, made sure that they're, they were fed and so forth because they were taking all the money. Now, Brian, how much money do you think you'd take off those few passengers? You know, I don't know. I know money was scarce during that time, but I'm sure if they had the money to go and travel and do something, that they had to be well off. Well, it really surprised me. Uh, of total for everything of value was $2,827.75. Plus the gold watches and chains and well, no, that was that, that was what they claimed as total oh, value okay. of the watch. Wow! So now you know this is a lot of money. I mean, one guy had like six hundred dollars in cash on him and so forth, which you know to me is a lot of money. Yeah, you know, even today. today yeah. But they were traveling with a lot of money, and you know you wouldn't have thought that just passengers going tourists, you know, they would have. So Jesse and and Bill did pretty good that day. Yeah, I think. Was... Uh, by the way, I want to tell you a little side note about that stagecoach. A couple of years ago, I was at the Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I don't know if it's still there, but they have restored that stagecoach, and it's on exhibit down at the Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You know, I've been by the museum many times. I've never stopped. I, I need to make a stop and go through there. Oh, it's a great thing, and, and of course, you know, they had the the floor filling right, right. and that's amazing to me you got a round building and a round hole formed right in the middle of the building and it didn't you know mess with the structure of the building i mean it's just to me a miracle that that didn't oh, yeah. how that happened in, in itself but anyway the stagecoach is there 
Wow. So you can uh, you can go by there today, and if it's still there, you might check with them. If anybody that wants to go see it, make sure that it's there. But uh, the last I heard, they didn't have any other place to put it right now, so that it was there. And they have it restored it thing, and it is absolutely beautiful. Huh. The artwork on that is breathtaking. It is it is a much fancier thing than you can imagine. It's not just a plain old. It's a it's a very artful carriage, I'll tell you that, and built like a tank. So the Cadillac of its day. The Cadillac of its day, okay. yes. All right. So what about Yankee Bly and the the bearded tombstone salesman? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories. Jesse, you know, he bless his heart, he was he just uh, loved to take chances. He was a risk taker. He was a bold, and I think that's one of the things that people would. That's why they paid so much attention to them because they were so brazen in the things they did. Well, this was in uh, 1876 at the Louisville Train Depot. Um, there was a bearded tombstone salesman there. <laughs> Said he was a tombstone salesman. Approached uh, Detective Yankee Bly, Delos Yankee Bly. And said, sir, aren't you Mr. Bly? And he said, yes, I am. He said, well, I've heard a lot about you. He said, you are a very famous uh, policeman. He said, you've done a lot of, solved a lot of cases and started talking about his counterfeit cases and he talked to him for a few minutes and he said, by the way, he said, are you still after the James boys? He said, yeah. He said, I can tell you right now, uh, I hope to catch him sometime before I die. Hmm. He said, I, that's my goal was to catch him before I die. He said, well, good luck to you. So <laughs> yeah. he walked away. So three days later, when uh, Yankee Bly went into his office, he got his mail. <laughs> there was a postcard there from St. Louis telling him of the, of the meeting at the railroad station. And uh, Jesse said this. He said, uh, sir, I just wanted to let you know you have met Jesse James, so now you can die in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Yankee, Yankee Bly. <laughs> sat down, he was, you know, you can imagine the humor he was in. He sat down, poured a cup of coffee in the office, and leaned back in his chair, picked up the newspaper, and there it was, July the 8th, 1876. Pacific train was robbed of $17,000 by the James <laughs> Younger guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's not as astute as a... <laughs> Bless his, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> can you imagine? What was it like to live with Jesse and Frank? Well, we said we'd talk a little bit about their their lives and their home life. As, as strange as it seems, uh, well, I guess it, I'll just say it like that, as it seems, I don't know this to be, Jesse seemed to be a good father to his children and a good husband and very loyal to Z, you know. Right. Uh, the, the, their life was, it had to be terrible. You know, Z and the children just think, you know, they moved every three or four or six months. Even in Nashville, they moved like three or four times in that t span of years. They had to remember all these assumed names. The children couldn't go out and play with other children because they was afraid they'd talk. You know how children, right, how right. honest children are. So imagine their life. And Z, you can just imagine how she had to live. She couldn't make friends because people asked, well, what does your husband do or who is he? And you always know, looking over the shoulder, got to, worrying about the next knock yeah, at the door. I always said I'd never make a good liar because I can't remember nothing. <laughs> so you have to remember all this stuff if you're lying about it because you could get crossed up pretty quickly. So 
their life was pretty hard. They constantly looked, you know, we talk about Frank having to move the chairs in the Sunday school room that he taught in because he could never stand with his back to a door. And that's that was a way of life for them. Yeah. And it was pretty sad to live like that. You could be, you know, um, in Nashville, uh, racing horses under assumed names, uh, working in a barrel factory, making probably just common wages. Uh, they didn't live that well. You know, you would think that they had, you know, there was times, you know, that they probably had more money than the average person. But, right. you know, it, it didn't seem to change their lifestyle any because they could not put down roots anywhere. So that uh, that that kind of life had to be hard on them, hard on the, the on family their lives and relationships, and constantly taking risks. You can imagine their in laws, their yeah. extended family, not knowing where they were, couldn't contact them, afraid to send them a letter, afraid to get exposed. Just think about it. Yeah, it would be tough. Let's talk about uh, Jesse's death and tie it in with Mammoth Cave. Yeah, uh, I think I won't go into a lot of detail with that, but because I think people that's been told over and over and over. And it was basically Bob Ford had met with uh, Governor Crittenton, and they'd arranged a deal of $10,000 reward for Jesse. And so um, Bob, his brother, was staying with Jesse there in St. Joseph, Missouri, and it was April 1882. Uh, Jesse had taken his guns off, and uh, which he rarely ever did. Uh, so evidently he did not suspect anything that the Fords were on the take, you know. So he stood up on a chair to straighten a picture up on the wall, and uh, Bob saw his chance. He pulled a pistol out and shot him in the back of the head. Mm. So, you know, he hit the ground. Z screamed. She come running in there. The little children were there. Wow. The Fords got up and run out the door. And uh, that's where the story, you know, the song we talked about, right. we started with the dirty little coward shot Mr. Howard. He was, and that was one of his aliases. That was one of his aliases while he was living there. And, and so... What happened was um, immediately people began to realize this was Jesse James. You know, the word got out. All of a sudden, there were just people all around the house, and it was just a, as a, as a mad scene. People were stealing things. You know, they were taking souvenirs, and it was just amazing how people thought back then. Well, um, I told you all at the end of this podcast that we would talk about how we knew that it was Jesse James that was killed that day. Well... You remember the watch that Judge Roundtree had stolen? Yes. On the Mammoth Cave stage robbery? Yeah. Well, Jesse had it in his vest on his person <laughs> that day. And Z had uh, the uh, daughter's Lizzie's ring, which her nickname was Patsy, and it was engraved inside the ring. Okay. So she had the ring on. And so when the authorities came, they took everything they had. Now, I'll tell you later, the watch was passed down the family and donated to the Filson Club in Louisville. And my understanding was the last time I was there and asked about it, it had been stolen. Really? Stolen so again? Out, it's maybe out there somewhere. Well, so to put all the conspiracy theories to rest, that was Jesse James that day that was shot. Yes, and then the DNA evidence was overwhelming. Uh, and then you talked about the bullet in the lung. A bullet in the lung, the DNA testing, you know, that I think was pretty conclusive. So... You know, you, you think just along, though, about that Mammoth Cave stage robbery, the chances of that watch and that ring being at that place, some any other way. Uh, High odds. I'd think lightning would be more likely to hit you. Yeah. yeah. And what about uh, Frank's later years? I know we've talked about him teaching um, Sunday school here in Kentucky. Yeah, Frank, uh, 
you know, he he was brought he he turned himself in. Uh, they had a trial. He was acquitted for lack of evidence. So he, other than when he turned himself in, Frank or Jesse never spent a day in jail. Um, Frank, they couldn't get a jury to convict him. They they didn't have. I mean, how do you convict somebody of something that happened ten years ago or whatever? You know, right. hearsay and. So anyway, they just kind of gave up. You know, the guy was getting old. He was no longer a threat to society. I, I don't know all the reasons. But anyway, so Frank had become something of a celebrity. Um, he uh, Cole Younger, when he got out of prison, um, Cole and him started a Wild West show. Hmm. And actually, I saw a picture of them in, believe it or not, Pikeville, Kentucky. Really? With the Wild West show. So they had traveled around a little bit. I think some of Cole's uh, conditions of his parole wasn't that he couldn't capitalize too much on his name or fame or something, but I don't know. They did have a Wild West show. Um, Frank would spend a lot of afternoons, Saturday and Sunday afternoons, sitting in the courthouse square. He moved back to the home place. Uh, He had a farm at one time in Fletcher, Oklahoma. I have a photograph of him out there playing on a field. Uh, But he came back to the home place. He would charge people 50 cents for a tour of the of the, the home there. And I know they sold a lot of uh, memorabilia, even uh, Frank and Jesse's mom. Yeah, this belonged to Jesse. Yeah. And then they would pull another one out when the next person came along. Well, they'd sell rocks from the grave. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was, you know, they'd, they'd have to replenish the rocks on the grave. And, the t- and, you know, Jesse's first grave was there at the home place, and then they had to move him. And they had chipped away the, the tombstone where there wasn't anything left. You know, yeah. it, was, it was just amazing. Well, before before I know you want to read a, a Frank's letter to Bell, but tell the story about um, Frank in the go, in the in the matchbox. That is a great story. Yeah, well, he used to loaf out there on the courthouse square, and people, you know, he was a celebrity. People, everybody wanted to talk to Frank James. Right. You know, it was just it was just a cool thing to do at that time. So everybody come up to him. And he would be sitting there, and he had this matchbox, and he'd have two coins in it, and he'd be sitting there jingling them, you know, and and, you know, they would be talking to him. And, you know, eventually the conversation, they'd notice, and they'd say, well, Frank, what you got in the matchbox? <laughs> and he'd say, well, there was a, something I value more than anything. He said, well, there was two coins that they took off of Jesse's eyes. When they, you know, they used to put coins on people's eyes to weight them down. So right. They would, <laughs> right. So anyway, they said this is the two so coins. So they went and sat and stare at you, stare yeah, right. at you mm-hmm. out of the casket. Right. So he said they, they took these coins off Jesse's eyes. And... Of course, eventually, as the conversation would come around, I'd say, Frank, what would you take for them coins? Oh, I couldn't sell them. I, I think they're, <laughs> that's the only things I have left of Jesse's, you know. And Frank, I'll give you $50 for those coins. No, I couldn't do it. I, I, I just couldn't do it. They're, they're two of my favorite things on earth. Frank, I'll give you $100 for them coins. Well, I guess I could let you have them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, they they buy the coins and walk away. And a few minutes later, he'd take two more coins out, put in the matchbox, and start all over again. <laughs> Man, what characters. All yes. right, I know you wanted to uh, talk about Frank's letter to Bell Samuels. Yeah, this was a uh, Bell Pence. Um, this was dated January the 15th in 1909. Now, um, I want to tell you about this letter before I read it, actually. Uh, This was 44 years prior to that. This is where Frank James was at this house that's standing today, still there. It's at Deetsville, Kentucky. It's it's along the railroad there. It's called the Alexander Sayers House, and it's privately owned. But uh, this house was where he was the night that Quantrell was shot. Okay. And I think that the deal was that Frank had pneumonia, and he was— 
he was recuperating there. That's why he wasn't with Quantrill. I just learned this recently, by the way. Okay. And uh, this is one of the theories of why he wasn't with Quantrill. So um, he's, he's reflecting back on this. He remembers this. So I'll read this. It says, Dear Bill, I was delighted to hear from you in May. I was almost afraid to write when I did. I remember when I last wrote Mrs. Sayers and received a reply from Nettie, and she was dead. Lord, so many changes have taken place since I first knew you. And I think it was the latter part of this month, 44 years ago, um, that I was first at your old home in Aunt Finetta's. Oh, memory is a sad thing. I can scarcely realize it has been so long. At the same time, the greatest uh, consolation to me is that those I have known the longest and the most intim intimately are still my dear friends. Bless your soul. I would like to come and see you and hope that I may live to do so. So say hi to Mary. I am truly your old friend, Frank James. P.S. Miss, Miss James sends love. Wow. That's one of the last letters he wrote because he didn't live too long after that. Okay. So it kind of ties everything. Yes, sir. And his letter is, yeah. Well, that concludes uh, part three in the uh, Frank and Jesse James at Kentucky podcast. Thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. If you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends, leave a five-star review and a comment. This will help others find our podcast, and we'll see you next week with a new podcast.